Well, it's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Let me pray for us before we get started. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the chance to gather together freely in your name, hear from your word. I pray that you uh, speak in me and through me, that your word would go forth and not come back void. I pray that you would make clear to us your will and the message that you have for us this morning. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Let me uh, ask you to stand up again. We're going to read Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. This passage comes from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, about two-thirds of the way through Jesus' sermon. But here is the reading of God's Word. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Go ahead and be seated. In 1843, Charles Dickens published his famed novella, A Christmas Carol. The central character of the story is Ebenezer Scrooge, who's a greedy old miser of a man. And Dickens described him as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Scrooge had an employee named Bob Cratchit, who's overworked and underpaid and treated pretty unfairly. Scrooge was so absorbed in his greedy ways that he mercilessly held Cratchit to extreme standards, only begrudgingly giving him Christmas Day off from work. But what Scrooge wasn't able to see was the path of his own greed. His hardened heart had obstructed his vision of the beauty of generosity. His sight was impaired by his own ways. He loved to point out all the nitpicky faults of Bob Cratchit and others, but the sharp knife of his cynicism always pointed outwards and never turned upon his own life. 
The only thing that escaped his cynicism was his own cynicism. Unfortunately, the world is full of hypocrites like Ebenezer Scrooge, who seem always able to peer into the vices of others, but never take the medicine that they prescribe themselves. You see, we all have a tendency to see the faults of others while conveniently overlooking our own. In short, we have logs in our eyes. Fortunately, God's gracious generosity removes those logs from our eyes. This passage that we're looking at today is from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is the most famous sermon preached by the most famous preacher. You guys are blessed to have Nate here up front uh, most weeks, and um, he does a phenomenal job, but he's not Jesus, all right? Uh, Jesus was the best preacher ever, and here we have the best sermon ever by the best preacher ever. That was meant to be, like, uplifting to Nate's, okay? So please, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, a little bit of context here. The Sermon on the Mount divided into different sections. The immediate context here is a few things that get in our relationship with Christ, that get in the way of our relationship with Christ. So a couple of sections before this section talks about treasure and how the accumulation of things gets in the way of our relationship with Christ. And then the section right before this one is about anxiety and how overly worrying about things gets in the way of our relationship with Christ. And then we get to this section here, which is an over-eager eel, an over-eager zeal for keeping others in line that gets in the way of our relationship with Christ. All right, so I want to look at this in three different sections. First, we will see that we point the finger. Second, we'll see that God receives requests. And then third, we'll see that Jesus restores our vision. So we point the finger, God graciously receives requests, and then third, Jesus restores our vision. First, we point the finger. Let me look again at verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you, not, uh, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there's a log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Uh, These first words, judge not. This sets the scene. We love to place ourselves as the judge, as the arbiter of truth. We get to decide what's right, and we get to decide what is wrong. So the scene is a courtroom scene where we love to envision ourselves as the presiding judge. But Jesus says, whoa, 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 wait, wait. You aren't the final authority in other people's lives. 
You don't get to bring down the gavel of judgment and make the decision for the fates of others, casting them aside. Jesus is going to tell us to get down off the bench because we're not qualified to be up there. And why aren't we qualified to be up there? Why does Jesus tell us that we can't do that? It's because we have a log in our eyes. Our vision is impaired, and we can't see clearly enough to be objective. Uh, Have any of you gone to a recent maybe sporting event or some sort of um, uh, musical performance, and you buy a seat, seat geek, take max, or whatever, and there's those warnings that some seats that are cheaper, heavily discounted, they say like partial view seating. And there's actually some commercials like this where you get into your seat and there's like a big pillar right in front of you and you can't see what's going on out there. This is a little bit of like what is going on with this passage and the log. And we all have partial view seats into the lives of other people. And yet, despite the impaired view, we seem to come up with a rationalization for having 20-20 vision into the lives of other people and paying no attention to the faults of our own. One author that I've read in the past few years is Jonathan Haidt, or Jonathan Haidt, I, I don't know quite how to pronounce his last name. He's a professor at NYU, and he's written several books. One of those books was called The Righteous Mind. I recommend it. He's not a Christian at all. He's open about that and talks about that. Has actually had some debates with Christians before. I really respect his writing and the way that he has uncovered some psychological truths about people. But in The Righteous Mind, in his first like introduction to the book, he says this, I'll draw on the latest research in neuroscience, genetics, social psychology, and evolutionary modeling, but the take-home message of the book is ancient. It's the realization that we are all self-righteous hypocrites. We're all self-righteous hypocrites. And then he goes on to quote Matthew 7 about the log and the speck, calling it an ancient wisdom. And again, this is coming from a non-Christian, but he's recognizing what Jesus told us 2,000 years ago, that we're all self-righteous hypocrites. And you guys are all staring at me. It's like, who is this guy telling me that I'm a self-righteous hypocrite? Well, I have to admit that I am also a self-righteous hypocrite. I remember about 10 or 12 years ago, I was an RUF intern there was this one bike route that I would always take, and it, I went through this four-way intersection at a stop sign every day, sometimes at least twice a day, but sometimes four or six or eight times a day. As a biker, I was usually you know, ready to go somewhere, and I would get jealous of my momentum. And I remember coming up to this stop, and like I said, this is a daily thing. I, I would go through this intersection a lot. And so if there was a car coming from this angle and I was biking this way, even if they just like barely beat me to the stop sign, I would, I would be like, okay, I'm going to go and like make it through because, you know, I've got some momentum to carry through. And then I remember one day, um, I, I was the car coming this way and I came to the same intersection and, you know, I had barely beat the biker and I like 
accelerated on the gas really fast to make sure that they knew that I, was, I had the right-of-way. Like I, I was justified in my action to actually go through this intersection, and they were like, they kind of like fumbled and had to get off their bike. Whichever angle we're coming from, we, we always want to justify why we have the right-of-way. And if I dug deeply enough into your life, I'm sure that we could uncover uh, scenarios where this comes up. We love to rationalize and justify our own behaviors, even when we hold others at fault for those same exact behaviors. Okay, I want to note that this text does not say that other people around us are blameless. Uh, in fact, it says that they also have specs, um, things, obstructions in their vision, but, you know, they're not morally perfect either, but I want to focus, as the text does, on the log in our own eyes and not the speck in uh, other people's eyes. So the question, the question is why? Why do we see so clearly the faults of other people? yet neglect our own, overlook our own? And I think the answer is that, that deep down inside of us, if we actually took the time to, to think and to reflect and to process, we would come to the realization that there is something deeply unsettling and wrong uh, about us, and that we're trying to compensate for that by reducing other people down. I have a, a colleague who has my same job at a different campus, and he's like, he's a friend of mine, but he's also like published and really smart and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he's, he's great. I really enjoy hanging out with him. But he uh, wrote this article uh, on a similar topic, and um, he called it, You Want a God of Judgment. And he touches on the question here before us, and he says this, Indeed, I have a hunch this nagging sense of culpability is an unspoken motivator behind some of our most frenetic and angry behaviors. Many of us are on a quest, a quest that we may not realize or admit, to justify and atone for our own unrighteousness. If we can spot the sins and hypocrisies of our neighbors, we must not be guilty of them ourselves. And so we work for the good, not just because it's right, but because we need to prove to ourselves and the watching world that we aren't complicit. Our very sense of self is on the line. Did, did you catch that? We're in the habit of proving to ourselves and to our neighbors that we're not complicit in the troubles of the world. And I think, I think he's right. If we can divert our mental energy and, and, and get the microscope, uh, microscope off of ourselves, uh, place the scrutiny somewhere else, uh, shift the attention elsewhere, then we can maintain uh, a sense, it, it, an illusory sense of self-righteousness, at least momentarily. If I was preaching to RUF UW students, this is when I would kind of like, like dive in and, and apply more specifically, like where do, we, where do we see this landing on your own lives? 
And I, I love them. Um, I get to hang out with them all the time. And uh, some of them are more forthright and uh, uh, truthful with me than others. Um, but uh, I don't know you guys nearly as well. So I'm going to do this for RUF UW students right now, okay? And you just get to listen in for a second. And then you get to apply it for yourselves. A couple of examples here that I can think of. If I'm talking to UW students, here's, here's one little helpful aid. If you say, like, at least I don't blank, then we're probably landing in the territory of Matthew 7, 1 through 12 here. Okay? At least I don't do that. Right? This is excusing ourselves for whatever other behavior. I know that my professor didn't want me to plagiarize. I know that my professor said not to use chat GPT. But at least I didn't just like totally copy somebody else's paper. I know that God calls me to a uh, sexually faithful life, but at least I'm not sleeping around like a number of my friends are. All sorts of ways in which we can say, at least I don't do that. Uh, Maybe for some of you younger dads in here, I'm a younger dad. I know I should probably get up in the middle of the night and help change a diaper, uh, but at least I'm home most evenings. Whatever, whatever the case may be, it's like, where do you find the at least I don't do blank? And we're landing in this, uh, this territory of the log and the speck. We love to point the finger in accusation Fortunately, God kind of does the opposite, and he receives requests in grace. Let me read uh, verses 7 through 11 again. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Okay, remember the immediate context is about uh, a number of things that get in the way of our relationship with Christ. But here we see a beautiful relationship with access, with like, with proximity, with closeness. And these verses are all about the grace of God. There's three commands, ask, seek, and knock, and they're beautiful commands. But the promises are actually sixfold, meaning the grace of God is emphasized over and above the zeal of the askers. This little section is all about the grace of God. And look at the examples that Jesus gives. He places the context in a family room, or like a family context with a father and a son. We have moved from a courtroom to a family room. A kid asks for bread and asks for fish. 
And the loving dad isn't going to give him a stone or a serpent. Why? Because the fish and the bread are meant to satisfy a basic need. The father knows what is good for his kid. Now, I know that as a father, I have limitations. And Jesus is actually pointing out, like, how much more here is your heavenly father know what your basic needs are? How much more does our heavenly father actually know what we need than an earthly father knows what his kids need? But I think these verses are, have a lot to do with prayer and bringing our desires in front of God and how receptive our Heavenly Father is to our own requests. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, a few sections before this, is the Lord's Prayer. And it's an incredible model for how to pray. And here again, we have an exhortation to pray. Uh, the, the instructions are incredibly open-ended here. Ask. It's like, ask, ask for what? Right? Seek. Knock. Like what, like, what exactly are you telling me to do? How are you exhorting me to pray? And I, I think that um, maybe it's a negative way to think about this, but it's like, how often do we fail to bring our desires in front of God? Right? How often do we neglect to ask and to seek and to knock? How often does this happen for you? If, you're, if there's a desire that has been placed on your heart and you don't bring that in front of God, it could be a big thing or a small thing. You know, how often do you bring your desire in front of God if you're thinking through a career change, something big like that? Uh, or maybe a, if you have a desire for a restored relationship with a friend or family member. If you have a desire for wisdom in your parenting, how often do we actually go to our knees, literally or figuratively, in front of God? Or maybe you have a desire for uh, the health of your aging parents. What is our desire and how do we bring that in front of our Heavenly Father? Uh, I remember when... Um, our kids really, really, really wanted a dog. My daughter, she was uh, seven at the time. She would ask me about it multiple times a day. Like, Dad, when are we getting a dog? Dad, when are we getting a dog? Dad, when are we getting a dog? And she's just asking. She's like hounding me. Um, pun maybe intended, sorry. I really wanted a dog. And um, I, I genuinely... I. Thinking like this is probably a good idea. We're probably in a, the right state of life for this, and I think it would actually be good for our kids. But they were incessantly asking. They were asking courageously. They were seeking me. They, they would like come find me. Like I had to go hide sometimes, just like get out of the way. But they're like heat seeking missiles, just like coming to get me. And they were knocking. They were knocking on my door, like a woodpecker might knock on a on a tree. They were asking, and they were seeking, and they were knocking. And we got a dog. <laughs> and she's an awesome dog. We've loved having her. But I use it as an illustration for what it means to ask and to seek and to knock. Maybe God has made it such that he uses our prayers 
to initiate the first move of his will and his plan. Right? Does he need to? No. Does it please him? Yes. He asks us to, to come to him. To, he grants us access to him. Now, these two things might seem disparate. Like, we point the finger, but God is telling us to ask, seek, and knock. Like, how do these things go together? We are actually, like, pointing the finger and creating distance between us and whatever's over there. And God the Father is asking us to, to come and to, like, draw more closely in. He's actually closing the gap where we are spacing out. Uh, we point the finger, but God graciously receives requests. And lastly, Jesus restores our vision. All right, how can we do these things? How can we ask, seek, and knock? What's the basis for which we are able to remove the log in our own eye and approach the Father in courage? Look again at the first two verses. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. All right, if we go around judging other people, then we ourselves will be held to that standard. The problem is that none of us lives to even our own standard, much less to God's standard. But placing this in a legal courtroom scene... When we get off the judge's bench, we rightly recognize that God is the one who is seated there, and we are the ones who are on trial. We're coming before the tribunal of God. God is hearing our case, and the evidence is mounting against us. But then, the most extraordinary thing happens God raises his gavel, brings it down, and says, you are not guilty because the price of your guilt has been laid upon Jesus. Jesus paid the price even though he didn't deserve it. Living in light of this reality allows us to be self-critical, to examine the logs in our own eyes and examine the darker parts of our own hearts and where we don't measure up knowing that the judge has ruled us not guilty. We actually have the freedom to live in a way that recognizes our own deficits and not be shackled by the burden of trying to make up for it, of trying to compensate for our own deficiencies. But Jesus goes even further than ensuring our status of being not guilty in the courtroom by taking us into the family room. We go from a cold and unfamiliar courtroom into a warm and familiar family room, and it's here that we are treated as sons and daughters. It's here where we have belonging. In Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth this son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might have 
Uh, we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are a son, God has sent his spirit, uh, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus is the son of God. And he stoops into the world, making it possible for you and for me to be adopted into the family of God. We're not naturally born into the family. We're brought in, made possible through Jesus Christ. And so we're brought into the family room of God, this gathering place where we're able to ask boldly, to seek courageously, and knock ferociously. It's a privilege to be able to approach our Heavenly Father in prayer, and one that we chronically underutilize and undervalue. And it's these lenses through which Jesus allows us to see more clearly. He restores our vision so that we see our own guilty verdict wiped clean, the punishment laid upon himself. He restores our vision so that we know we are in the family room of God where we can boldly approach our Heavenly Father. You see, you and I, we need a different way to see. And fortunately, Jesus restores our vision. Ebenezer Scrooge was so narrowly focused on his own life that he missed seeing other people. And he needed something or someone that was outside of himself to jolt him out of that vision into a new vision, to give him a new set of lenses to see himself and to see others. Only Jesus can do that for you, and only Jesus can do that for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount and uh, the riches that are uh, within it. I pray for um, eyes to see clearly. That you would allow us to see and, and then be open to examining our own hearts and our own eyes uh, and the logs that are in it. I pray that you reduce our hypocrisy that we might be able to uh, more authentically come before you uh, in gratitude, knowing the depths of our uh, sinful hearts and therefore the heights of your love for us. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the work that you've put before them. And we thank you for this morning and the chance to worship together. I pray that we are able to respond uh, in worship uh, to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.